Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as that will help others to learn about Autism Stories. If you've listened to many episodes of Autism Stories, then you may have picked up on the fact that I like to share stories that maybe are not so commonly shared. Many times these stories are things that many others are going through or have gone through, and I think hearing from someone else who's going through a similar experience or situation that you're going through is so vital. One of those types of stories is about the experiences of autistic women while breastfeeding. That's why I'm excited to talk with Dr. Amy Grant on today's episode of Autism Stories. Dr. Grant talks with me about her research on breastfeeding, executive functioning, and sensory challenges while breastfeeding, and the advantages autistic researchers have when they do qualitative research. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Amy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start off and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? I guess there are two time points that are relevant. So when I was about 19, probably, I applied for a job to train to be a paramedic on the job. And I got through to the last stage and they said to me, other people have got loads more healthcare experience, go and get some healthcare experience and come back in a few years. So I looked for jobs and found a charity that was applying for support workers for 24-hour residential care for autistic people. So I applied for that job and got it. And for six years then, I worked supporting autistic people who were in 24-hour residential care and so that gave me a bit of a an introduction to the autistic community sometimes how things absolutely shouldn't have been done some things were done in a really people-centered way um, in general I would say the people I work with had quite good support plans in place in terms of the funding and the hours they had available. So if they needed two people to be with them in the community, then they generally had two people so they could go and do the things they wanted to do most of the time. So that all happened. And then I went off on my merry way, went to university, uh, was diagnosed as dyslexic in 2005 and had you know all of these neurodiverse traits and then had some really difficult times at work from 2017 onwards when my agreed adjustments got taken away and started reading a bit more 
And it's something that I'd come back to over the years when life had felt hard, was reading about autism and thinking, could I be autistic? And I went and got diagnosed privately in 2019 and kind of burst onto the, uh, the autism community going, I found my people. This is where I belong. And from there, I guess I've been in contact with people that do a lot of kind of activist work. And I've kind of, I'd say I'm still developing my place in the community, but it's been a real change from kind of coming from seeing what residential care is like, even when it is done reasonably well, and then coming from the other side of being like, actually, why did those people need to live in group homes? Why couldn't they have lived in their individual flats and still received the support? And the answer is it's cheaper to put people in a group home. And I think I would be much more critical if I came to that job now, knowing a bit more about, uh, you know, I think there's been a big development in kind of critical autism studies and how we perceive autistic people over the last couple of decades. I'm still learning constantly and will no doubt be learning for many more years. There's a lot of kind of horror stories about residential care and those types of things. When you did see it work reasonably well, what did that look like? It looked like things like having a house meeting every week. So one house I worked in, which had three adults in their kind of 20s to possibly up to early 30s, that every week there would be a house meeting on, you know, does anyone have anything they want doing? We'll plan the meals together. We'll plan the activities together. And, you know, making sure that everybody's needs were known and respected as much as possible where they didn't conflict with others' needs. You know, and it's so... Just the care that I provided was so individualised. I mean, one guy loved going surfing. So, you know, it would be a case of basically being his chauffeur to take him to the beach and then me making a complete idiot of myself trying to surf really badly while he was out, you know, with all the other people that could actually surf. Someone else that liked going out playing with walkie-talkies and, you know, going basically playing a, a really big game of hide-and-seek in the middle of, you know, some beautiful countryside. You know, so just such individual kind of interests and activities and that the care workers responded to that and did what the person wanted to do rather than I want to go shopping so I'm going to go and (laughs) do my own shopping while you do yours yeah I think people that weren't person-centered didn't tend to stay in the job for long I think there's generally quite a good ethos of we do the things that the clients want to do and it's your job to fit around that. What a novel concept, checking in with people to see how things are going and asking them what they need. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. And, you know, and I think the company I worked for had some older care homes that I've seen reported in the media. At one point, I was dating someone whose dad worked for the care inspectorate in the UK, and I was told that they were 
you know, looking at, you know, so it wasn't that the charity was universally providing brilliant care. You know, some of those residents that had been in care for years that were funded for half a support worker or a quarter of a support worker were basically just parked and institutionalised and didn't really get their needs met in the same way because of the funding that was available for them. I didn't tend to work in those places because they're quite a lot further away from where I lived. But the other end of the spectrum, uh, the spectrum, the spectrum of care that was provided, there was a young man who was five to one to go out in the community because when he had a meltdown, he had a really big meltdown. And the care that was provided to him was really lovely. He liked being out and about, going and feeding the ducks and, you know, like just ordinary everyday stuff. Um, We just made that happen for him. But then other people that might have had those same needs and didn't have the funding basically just had to sit around watching TV all day because, you know, it wouldn't have been safe to go out. Now, now you have a, a PhD in social policy. So, so what areas of social policy are particularly meaningful to you? So, I started out studying social policy as an undergraduate, and my undergraduate dissertation was looking at poverty relief. So, in the UK, we we have kind of five areas of social policy that are kind of minimum standards so you should have a minimum standard of housing you should have a minimum standard of health and you should have a minimum income and so I started out looking at housing for people that were homeless and then my PhD looked at providing financial support to people who were long-term sick or disabled and not able to work And I think kind of at my core, I've always had a really strong interest in social justice and the idea that someone should go without food just seems completely bonkers to me. Like, why are we doing that? Why why have you got a £1,500 laptop and we've got someone over here who can't even buy lunch? I mean, that just doesn't compute. So that was what I looked at for my PhD was people's experiences of being on these very low incomes that were through the state and the hoops that they had to jump through to get this tiny bit of money. And if I could have stayed carrying on looking at that, I would have. But unfortunately, the government doesn't really want people working on that. So there don't seem to be that many jobs where you get to look at, you know, kind of what the state does to support people on low incomes. So I've moved across into health just as a pragmatic way of myself staying employed. But I think it's all really important. I just think how can we expect people to give their best to society if society is treating them really awfully? Like everybody should have a home, everybody should have health care and should be able to feed themselves, clothe themselves, have basic necessities. Yeah, so I think it's all really important, but poverty is definitely one of the central things for me. Now, talking about feeding, you're currently the senior research officer 
with an emphasis on infant feeding for Swansea University. Hopefully I pronounced the name of the university correct. What is the role and responsibilities in your position? You did pronounce it correctly, <laughs> yeah, with, with Swansea. So my role is I work under Professor Amy Brown, who is this amazing women-centred researcher who focuses on experiences of infant feeding. And when we talk about infant feeding, we mean from a tiny newborn baby, so either being fed breast or formula milk, all the way up through to weaning and, and what older children are eating. So in that role, I'm trying to grow the centre. So my manager, Amy, has a really big teaching road. She has lots of projects she's already involved in. And so I spend my days applying for funding to do more research. And then when we get the funding, doing those projects, bringing in those staff. Yeah, so at the moment, I've got a few projects that are ongoing. So we've got one that's just started recently where we're looking at getting parents in the home to do an experiment to see how safe the formula that they make up is because you're basically the temperature of the water needs to be above 70 centigrade. I'm not sure what that is for American listeners in Fahrenheit, but it needs to be at a certain temperature to kill the bacteria in the formula. Um, so formula always has salmonella and bronobacter in. And if that isn't killed off, then babies get tummy infections and can end up in hospital. I've got one project looking at that. And then another one that's just recently started where we're looking at autism health passports to see if they have any real benefit. So that stems from my personal experience of having an awful time in hospital when I went in for emergency surgery. Um, I had an ectopic pregnancy and I have some allergies and things as well as being autistic. And I have effectively a health passport of information my consultants told me to provide. And it was completely ignored and nobody tried to do anything to communicate with me in a way that might be supportive of me and I was put on a 10-bed ward you know there, there was just no consideration so the way I cope with really horrible situations is I pretend that I'm there as a researcher so as I was in hospital I was writing my ethnographic field notes and I was looking for existing literature on these sorts of things and found that there really wasn't very much about maternity services. So yeah, so that's turned into this grant application that we're now just starting to put into practice and, and looking at what autism health passports are. So generally they're one side of paper with some boxes that you can write some things about communication and sensory and other things. But also then to look at how they're used, because a single piece of paper by itself has no real power and can't really change anything. But if you think about, for example, a passport that allows you to cross borders and go into other countries, or maybe not, maybe you have a marginalised passport from a country that is, uh, is racialised and excluded. But it's all just one piece of paper 
until you've got an infrastructure around it that gives it some power. So I'll be looking at what exists and trying to um, to pull out what the infrastructure around an autism health passport should be to give it that power. So it actually does something to uh, to make life easier for us when we're receiving healthcare. And thinking about women and breastfeeding, what are some factors you think that should be considered considered when deciding how long to breastfeed? Main factor in terms of how long women should breastfeed is how long they want to breastfeed for. So you have some people that go straight off the bat, I absolutely don't want to breastfeed. And I think at that point, it's maybe having a conversation to find out what their worries and concerns are, but absolutely respecting that if they never want to breastfeed once, that's okay, it's their body. In terms of barriers to breastfeeding, though, in the UK, we have very poor support for women who are breastfeeding. Although it's a biological function, it's not something straightforward. It's not that you just hover the baby somewhere near the breast and it works. There's uh, you know, a complex range of positioning, attachment. The baby's suck needs to be right. Often babies are born with an extra little piece of skin under their tongue. That means that their tongue can't move enough to actually help release the milk. In the UK, we don't have good healthcare support to get around all of these barriers. So that can mean that women stop before they want to. And that that's before you're even autistic and maybe have some, uh, some other things making it harder. Um, the World Health Organization would say that the best nutrition for a baby is up until they're six months that they only have breast milk. And that can include donor milk from a milk bank or another mum, as well as from its biological mother. And then until at least two years, they should carry on receiving breast milk with natural weaning being well into a primary school age. So kind of seven, eight, nine would still be kind of a normal age for breastfeeding to end. But actually, it's really stigmatised and people get a bit confused and think that it has to be something sexual because it involves a breast. So there is a lot of shaming towards mums who breastfeed their babies beyond them being very, very little. Now, what about specifically for, in terms of infant feeding and autistic women, in terms of sensory experiences, how do you see that affecting this process? I did a review of the research literature and also of, of things like blog posts recently on autistic women's infant feeding experiences and there were barriers in kind of several different ways so first of all the health professionals had no idea about autism at all and really didn't know how to communicate with the mums to help them kind of learn because actually you do need to learn how to breastfeed as a mum. It, it doesn't just naturally happen. Um, so the services really weren't tailored to support the autistic mums. Staff could 
bully mums as well. Like there was some really negative interactions. And then the next phase along from that is just becoming a parent is absolutely exhausting to anybody. And for autistic people who maybe rely a bit more on having some control and structure and routine in their life, a brand new baby doesn't care about the fact that, you know, that you like to have a break between doing X and Y. <laughs> if they need feeding or if they have a wet nappy, they're going to let you know. So those things can be more difficult. And then on top of that, a lot of support, particularly in the UK context for new mums, comes from meeting up at like kind of parenting classes and then you know other people that have got babies at a similar age. But actually, those really are very accessible to autistic women who might find themselves on the edge or just withdrawing from a class entirely. So all of that can be really difficult. It can result in things like postnatal depression or just higher levels of anxiety. And then you need to think about feeding your baby. <laughs> so, like, so you've got all of these things to go through first. And absolutely, mums reported being touched out so it's so normal with a very little baby to have them on your body for 12 maybe even 16 hours a day when in the first couple of weeks when they're learning to breastfeed their tummy is tiny 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 you know it's about the size of a marble so it can only take a tiny amount of milk and it takes them a long time to get it out because they're not very strong and that having a baby across your body and that naked skin to skin can feel really intense. That feeling of actually, I just don't want anybody to touch me can be really hard. And other mums said the feeling of the baby suckling or being able to feel internally the movement of the milk through the breast could also make them feel very awkward and uncomfortable. There were definitely sensory barriers, but autistic mums also on the flip side would go and do a lot of reading. They do a lot of research themselves to try and problem solve, often before problems happened. So if they had to sit an exam on how to breastfeed, they would know all of the answers. <laughs> but actually it, it's so embodied and you know it, it's so intensely sensory. And it can be really difficult to go from what's written on a page to how to physically move your body and the baby's body and to know if it's right. So, yeah, so lots and lots of sensory challenges with breastfeeding. It's interesting you talked about knowing all the answers, but there still can certainly be anxiety even if you do know the answers. Um, which can affect um, executive functioning. So I'm wondering, how does executive functioning affect the process of breastfeeding? Yeah, absolutely. I think that you're so right about the anxiety levels being really high, that am I doing this right? Thinking about executive functioning, and this is something that comes out, I haven't seen it in the research on autistic women's experiences, but it comes out with neurotypical mums, is that you literally can't leave your breasts behind. So if you take your child out and they need an extra feed, 
it's okay because your body is always there you can always provide that whereas if you were formula feeding and you then didn't have another bottle prepared with you then actually you've got an issue you've got an upset baby until you can get them home i think breastfeeding itself is probably quite a positive for executive functioning because your body takes all of the thought process out of it apart from getting the baby attached and the baby able to take the milk on you don't need to worry about the contents of the milk at all and as i mentioned at the beginning with infant formula you mix up the powder with hot water and you have to do it in a particular way to try and kill off the bacteria the salmonella the chronobacter and if you don't do that right your baby can get a really serious tummy infection um and can end up in hospital rarely they can die even so i think executive functioning wise feeding formula can be more difficult because you need to for example boil your kettle and then wait no more than 30 minutes so you let it cool a bit but not for too long because else you should dump the water and start again and if that was me i'd have to set an alarm or there would be no way that i'd remember to go back especially when you know your baby's thrown up or needed their nappy changed and then you know maybe you have an older child or a dog or you know you're cooking or you know all of these different things and there was certainly some anxiety with formula feeding mums about if they were doing it right if they were mixing it up correctly but also on the flip side as well a common worry in all mums is how much milk is the baby taking and when you're breastfeeding of course the only way you can measure that is what comes out the other end of their nappy so are they going to the toilet enough whereas when you feed formula you have little ounce markers on the side of your bottle so you can tell how much they've taken on i think whichever way any mother is feeding their baby has an element of anxiety in it whether you're neurotypical or autistic now you know beyond um doing research on breastfeeding i you know i've read you've done a lot of other research um you you've also written a book uh, called doing your research project without uh documents which is a step by step guide to take you from start to finish in the research process you know i always appreciate anything that takes uh, me step by step because i get overwhelmed with too much information So um just wanted to learn why did you decide to write this book? Yes, I have done quite a lot of writing and actually that book that you've mentioned is my second book. And the reason I wrote my first book is that I do quite a lot of documentary analysis in my research and what that means is that I look at things that have been written down so magazine articles newspapers things on social media records court anything like that anything written down already and then i use that as data for my research and there were two books that had already been written that were quite old one from 1990 one from 2003 and they were both quite complicated so i wrote my first book to be 
easier than those books. So kind of for people that came after me, and it was kind of the book that I wish I had as a PhD student I was going to write. And then while I was writing that book, I realised that it still wasn't as accessible and easy kind of getting the key messages of what to do, what were the key steps, because there can be so much variation in different research projects. So I was then approached by a publisher about writing a book for them. And I was like, you know, I want to write the book that goes before the book I've already written. So the second book, which is due out in March this year, will be aimed at people doing their dissertation, so their final undergraduate research project, and just aiming to make things as easy as possible and answering the questions that I had as a student that I didn't know how to answer. I couldn't find how to answer them in the reading that I did. So just trying to make things straightforward and simple so people can do their best work. And how can people learn about your upcoming book and purchase a copy about it? So it's already on Amazon, which is very exciting. And my publisher, Policy Press, have it on their website. So you can pre-order either from Policy Press, who have a discount at the moment, I think of uh, 35% if you sign up for their mailing list, or from Amazon, and you can order it there, and it should arrive with you in March. Now, beyond your research in breastfeeding, this past year you had a research publication discussing that autistic researchers have an advantage when they do qualitative research. What do you think, between the research you did and your own experience, are the strengths of autistics when doing this type of research? So, yeah, the paper that came out was myself and my colleague, Dr. Helen Cara, and we both got diagnosed as autistic reasonably recently. The kind of research that I do sometimes is called qualitative research. And that's basically anything to do with words, not numbers. Certainly that's reading what someone's written on a, on a piece of paper, it's interviewing somebody, or it's going out and seeing what's happening in the world and writing down what's happening around you. And this kind of work is something that it requires a lot of brain power, a lot of kind of hyper-focus to what's happening in the moment. And also is something that I think perhaps traditionally autistic people wouldn't be seen as having enough empathy to be able to do well, that, that we are so other that we couldn't possibly do this research and interact with these other humans to find out what's happening in society. And I was talking with Helen about it and saying that maybe we should write something the author's name escapes me, but there was a paper that talked about the autistic advantage. And I thought that was a really nice framework to hang our discussions off. That instead of starting from a place of accepting that there is an inherent deficit, we're just going to come straight out in the beginning and go, actually, no, we're bloody amazing. Like, there is an autistic advantage. And... 
these kind of typically autistic traits that both Helen and I have are a real advantage for doing this sort of research where you need to really pay attention to what's happening and keep meticulous records. And actually, that it isn't just about Helen or I. It is that these autistic traits would make you very good at doing this kind of research. We had a really big response to it. So, so many people have reached out to us on social media and emailing us about their own experiences and saying that for some more early career researchers that they were going to use it in discussions with their managers and their supervisors so that we can stop being seen as a problem that actually we have these real strengths and if you are able to meet us halfway instead of sticking stubbornly to a neurotypical kind of paradigm of life you can come and join us halfway and you can have your own neurotypical advantages and our autistic advantages and together we'll be a really strong research team so yeah i'm really proud of that paper i think it should hopefully be something that can be quite beneficial for people that come up behind us that they can use it as a talking point with with people that are being ableist and unsupportive well amy i really appreciate uh, your time today and your knowledge i didn't have much knowledge on infant feeding and breastfeeding prior to our conversation. So it was great, great to learn a little bit more about that. You're very welcome. And you can always hit me up for more knowledge. It's something I'm going to keep on researching over the next few years is autistic people's experiences of infant feeding. So yeah, there'll be more to come. Thanks so much to Amy for the conversation. To learn more about Dr. Grant, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. If you're receiving coaching um, from Autism Personal Coach, having your coach going through experiences that you are about to go through can be so helpful. While not all of our coaches have been through the process of breastfeeding, several of them have. So if you're pregnant or have a newborn baby and you're trying to reduce your current or future overwhelm during breastfeeding, then Autism Personal Coach can help you through these challenges. You can book a free call with me today to learn how how Autism Personal Coach can support you during this process. A link for the free call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss the artistic experience in filmmaking. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.